want to tackle this idea that um, how to live with the mind of Christ in an abnormal world. How do we live with the mind of Christ in an abnormal world? And, and when I talk about abnormal, I just mean different post-Genesis 3. Uh, in, in a world that's broken after Genesis 1 and 2, the beauty of paradise and, and what we see now, there are a lot of ways we can describe this. I, I foreshadowed this by talking about Jesus as being normal. I think it's interesting when we look at the, the scope of the scriptures and we look at the beginning and we see Adam and the intention as God created Adam was to live as a human being. And, and part of what that humanness meant was to be, yes, both body and soul and uh, to live life unending. And Adam could not fulfill that example, so to speak. He, he demonstrated brokenness. But then we have one who was to come, who immediately was foreshadowed, I believe, in Genesis chapter 3, uh, who would crush the head of Satan and therefore undo all that was broken in Adam. And so the story of the scripture begins with all of its primary themes and, and expressions. And long awaited throughout the time of the Old Testament, we wait until the Messiah, the one who would come. And, and my focus on talking about Jesus in this way is in no way to disarm or to uh, lessen the idea of his divinity. Jesus was God in the flesh. But I also want to make sure that we appropriately highlight his humanity. And so when we describe Jesus as being normal, what I mean by that is that Jesus was born as a man, and he lived the life that we were designed to live. He, he lived in such a way that was according to the design of humanity. What do I mean by that? That Jesus honored the Father and represented God in every conceivable fashion. As we already read earlier today, Colossians 1.15, he's the image of the invisible God. You see, what makes Jesus distinct and different is everything he did came from the Father as a reflection of the character and the nature and the glory of of God. And in those days of the New Testament, so many people thought that God looked like the Pharisees in their projection of God. And Jesus comes on the scene in the very first sermon that he preaches in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, You've heard it said, but I say to you. And what Jesus is doing, not only by his teaching, but by his life of righteousness, is he's fulfilling the image of God, he's reflecting the character the nature, the grandeur, and the glory of God in humanness. And as I think about Jesus as being the plumb line, I think that's helpful for us now to start to dive into the world of how to explain abnormal. You see, the scriptures are simply a reflection of the character and the nature of God. I mean, this is the beauty of what God did in giving Moses the Ten Commandments. God was not giving Moses the Ten Commandments a list of do's and don'ts. You have to notice when God visited Moses on Mount Sinai, that was a terrible and terrifying thing. But the beauty is that God was giving Moses himself. God was giving Moses his character in written form. And notice the way Paul describes this, if we could do this quickly. Paul describes this, I didn't know that I had sinned until I knew what your law said. And see, when we see ourselves in relation to this God, he's the plumb line. And we as human beings are intended to reflect the character and nature of God, but we know 
We don't do that well. Something is broken. Now we begin to get into the pursuit of describing that which the world proposes as being abnormal. We have categories for this in the scriptures. And I think it's important for us, even when we look at something like James chapter 1, verse 25, where James is trying to teach us this understanding of ourselves, how to become self-aware, how do we understand who we are? He says, you, you, you look in the perfect law of liberty. You look into this word because it's the mirror that will reflect you naturally and appropriately. You see, what we do is we begin to compare ourselves to normal Christ because he reflected the character, the nature, and the glory of God. By design, and I don't think this is an accident, that those who are redeemed, God tells us in Romans 8, 29, that we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. I think by design, what's happening is God is taking all that was broken by process, the power of the Spirit, the crucified and raised Christ, he is now restoring everything that was broken by the curse. And this is a part of the process, the in sanctification. This is why biblical counseling pursues sanctification and describes abnormalities the way that we describe them and problems the way that we describe them. And that's often in contrast, as we've talked about much, and it's often in contrast to what we see in the worldly systems. So when we come to the scriptures, I want us to look first. We're going to spend all of our time, or most all of our time, in James chapter 1. But I want us to, to see how Paul, in 1 Corinthians, approaches this idea. And if uh, I wish we had time, we'll see what we have uh, to go through. But what I want to do is to help us to understand our primary goal and role is to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's really the definition of what it means to be healthy. Is as we pursue Christ, the way we interpret the world becomes different. The way we endure suffering, the way our character is built... It grows and it be we become different. We become more whole, so to speak, to the point to where we, we long for glorification and what's to come. Let me read just a couple of passages that will help get us started in the direction that we need to go uh, when we get to James chapter 1. Because I think it's important for us to consider a couple of things that we need to know that this is our primary aim and goal. Despite the world that we live in and not to unnecessarily dissect humanity, um, in the world that we live in, this is the aim and goal if you have a Christian distinction. If you have a biblical inkling, this is the direction that we're called to go and this is the way in which God couches our understanding of normal and what, what it is that we're pursuing, what makes us healthy, what helps us to become whole, so to speak. And Jesus is not negotiable, nor is the scripture negotiable and certainly not the work of the Spirit in New Testament language, which restores our soul. So I'll start in uh, chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. I'm going to read the first five verses and then skip down to the last few verses. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you this testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided, and this is an interesting passage, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And notice that throughout the book, what Paul is, is talking about is salvation in total. He's not just simply talking about justification. Uh, many times what happens in integrationist fields is they, they like to say that, well, Jesus has given us everything sufficient for salvation, and often primarily talking about justification. I would argue that 
Jesus has given us everything we need for all of life and godliness. He becomes necessary for the whole of the process, not just justification, but certainly sanctification, and we most assuredly agree glorification at that time where we will become most whole. Verse 3, he says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear, and in much trembling in my speech and my message were not, listen to this, were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. This is a critical verse, I think, that, that we need to anchor ourselves on, where he says that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Can I caution us in our drift, in our world, even in the Christian culture, where what we desire and we have an appetite for is to state our premises and to state our understanding of humanity in ways that make sense to the wisdom of the world. God makes very clear here through Paul that Anything that's wise in the world is actually quite folly to God. And anything that is uh, folly to the world is actually wise unto God. Let's get down. We could talk about, he, he argues here basically that we're going to focus on the wisdom of God in the, in the uh, passages in between. Verse 14 he says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. It's not that a natural man can't see can't see bits and pieces of truth. It just He can't infuse the full meaning of reality because there is a spiritual realm in the reality that you and I live in, right? There's underlying uh, uh, forces, if you will, that, that Ephesians chapter 6 described, right? We fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and, and powers. And the natural person can't see that with eyes. This is why, with, with his natural eyes, this is why Paul would describe in Colossians chapter 3, to think on things above, not on things on the earth, because you get a different perspe perspective and perception when we just see from the category of our natural eyes. We see things, but we don't see, as Jesus would describe with the Pharisees. He says, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. What we see here, I think Paul is going to encourage them, is with all the problems he's about to address in the totality of 1 Corinthians, is he's saying what anchors you and what helps you to think rightly about all of these sociological problems that you're facing is that your mind be anchored in Christ. It's going to begin to correct and make you whole in your intentions and your behaviors and the way that you interact with the outside world. Now turn to James. Now what I want to do with James is I want not just to us, for us to talk about that what makes you normal is the way in which you're conformed and transformed by the renewing of your mind into the image of Christ, this pursuit of sanctification as we talk about so often in biblical counseling that we put off things and put on things, that we mortify the flesh and we live to the spirit or we walk according to the spirit so that we not, will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And that is all good and true, but... As we talk about this process, God is doing something with us. God is doing something in us. In his kindness, he's taking us from unhealthy and broken. And it's a process. That's why we say this is progressive sanctification. And he's conforming us into the image of Christ. He's not making you a better you. He's not making you more comfortable in the world that we live in. He's actually making you now, fashioning you into the image of God. And the reason that that's a good thing is because that's what it means to be healthy. What it means to be healthy is that we return back to the way in which we were designed, which is to 
be in the image of God, to reflect the character and the nature of God that had been broken by the curse of sin, that now the Spirit has awakened us to. And we now, based on 2 Corinthians 5, 15, we now have the freedom in Christ to live for him and no longer live for ourselves. So turn to James chapter 1. What I want to contrast this with is, is not just tell you that our goal is that we aim at becoming like Christ. I want methodologically, I want us to see how that happens. I want us to see at least one of the ways, and this is not exhaustive, this is not uh, conclusive in every aspect of how God does this, but it's certainly one way in which we experience how God fashions us, how God makes us, how God pressures us to refine us, to make us more whole, to make us more healthy. And I'll be honest, as we think about this text, it's quite paradoxical to the way we think about how we should become healthy and whole. We think it should be uh, a little bit more easy, a little bit uh, less difficult. But God knows best. And here's what the writer says. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with, a, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man and unstable in all his ways. The first thing that we see is uh, the scriptures tell us to consider, to count. I have to be honest, I agree with Thomas Brooks. There are sometimes uh, that truth is both shining and scorching. This is one of the truths I would put in the category of scorching. Where he says that we're going to walk through various trials and he tells us to pause and consider. And James starts in a very different way than what we see Paul begin. You see Paul, as I mentioned earlier, he starts often with indicatives. This is who you are. And so now do this. James begins straight out with a command. This is actually an imperative. This is a command. James right off the bat calls us to do something. Because he assumes that what's going to happen is you're going to walk through trial and so you need to, to pause. Ed mentioned this earlier, that when we go through trial, when we go through darkness and difficulty, sometimes the best thing we can do is, is just pause. Here he gives language to that. He says to count or to consider. Now what that means is to weigh. It, it's, it's an accounting idea. How do we weigh what's going on? And, and I think what James is trying to get at is don't just follow your natural eyes when temptation or when trial comes. Because that can be deceiving. You see, what, most, what happens most to, to us is we're deceived by our natural eyes. And when a temptation or a trial or a difficulty comes and, and it comes upon us suddenly, we begin to respond and react to that trial in what we can sense with our five senses. And in response, what starts to happen is we begin to lose sight of considering it over and against the truths that God has compiled for us to consider it against. This is how, in Paul's language, we would see not as men of the earth, we would see as people who think on things that are above. James begins with this command. 
Why does he tell us to consider this joy? Right? Is do we line up in the joy line whenever we know a trial is coming? Right? That's not the idea. He says to consider this joy. And, and the reason he tells us to do that is what's not a normal and natural response whenever you encounter trials. To you, joy is not natural. In fact, it's quite natural for us to experience all other sorts of responses. But here he's saying there's something radical about considering who God is, his promises, over and against what's physically happening to you in this moment of trial and difficulty. And so he tells us to consider it. I think this is important because this demonstrates that we are not, we are not at the mercy of our trials. Can you just be free from that for a moment? We feel that we are at the mercy of what happens to us. You are not at the mercy of what happens to you. Joy is not something that's waiting on your trials to work out. We're not at the mercies of our trials for joy. Trials are inevitable. This is what he says here. Count it all joy when. He doesn't use the word if. When you encounter trials of various kinds or when you meet them. So it's not the idea of if, but, but when. What he means is these are normal human experiences in our broken world. Listen to Matthew 5, 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Notice the eschatological focus, the, the future focus. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. John 16, 33, which I've referred to several times, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. See, he's given us the location of all that we want. This rest and peace, again, is reiterated in him. But in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That's a promise. We will incur tribulation. 1 Peter 1, through, uh, 6 through 7. In this you rejoice. We've already gone through this passage uh, for a little while, if necessary, that you uh, have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Not only will we definitely incur trials, but sometimes these trials happen suddenly. Look at the, look at the text. When you meet, or when you, actually a, a better translation from the ESV is when you fall into trials of various kinds. It's really a description of the, the story of the Good Samaritan, that he fell among robbers, the same word is used here. It's a description of this happens not when you're expecting it. Like, Lord, can we wait on these trials because today's quite busy? Um, it wouldn't be a good day for that to happen or this to happen. Right? You'd never sign up for that. None of us would because we don't often see what God is doing in such things. So these things are absolutely sudden. And notice that they are various trials. They're, they come in different shapes, come in different sizes, come in varying degrees of intensity. And they're various in that they're not just simply, quote-unquote, spiritual trials. These are trials of various kinds. This is when you in, encounter the doctor and he says, I think we need to do a blood test. And I think it might be cancer. This is trials of various kinds. This is when you can't seem to grab a hold of your emotions. They're ebbing and flowing out of control. You see, James doesn't distinguish here between internal and external trials, doubtless because they are typically indistinguishable. 
Listen to the way John MacArthur describes this. Whether the trials begin as a financial problem or a physical illness, as a disappointment, criticism, fear, or persecution, it is our attitude about our and our response to it that reflects our spiritual condition. You see, I want you to notice that not only do we encounter trials consistently, this is going to happen to us, but these are trials of various kinds, and they often happen suddenly. But I want you to notice that God has an intent. God has a desire. Look at verse 4. He says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, I find that odd because in the previous session, you and I talked about this very thing. That this was Jesus' goal for us, is that he would bring us blameless and above reproach before the Father. This is what Paul borrowed from Christ to say this is, is intended to be uh, the purpose and point of the church. But now he's saying, uh, James is, is using this to say, this is a part of the way God manufactures this happening. Is God has a desire. And what's that desire? That we lack nothing. What's the goal? That you be mature. That you be complete. That you lack in nothing. Because the fact is, in, in our daily lives, we lack all the time. Romans 8.29, we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. I find that interesting because it's on the heels of one of the most quoted verses in our modern day. Does anybody know Romans 8.28? Right. That he works together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He works all things together for the good. And it's interesting how we describe and define good. See, you and I would describe and define good as, uh, Lord, I'll go through this trial as long as you pay me back sevenfold. And like you use King James language to think it's going to manufacture it kind of happening, right? That's how we define good. And God, if this benefits me, and that's the definition that we begin to build of good, but yet he expresses what good is. You see, this is God's definition of good, that we, be, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Do you see the beauty in that? Do you see the beauty of what God is willing to do for you that you're not willing to do for yourself? The God, I, I want it to be easy, even though I have flesh still living in me that's destroying me. And yet God is willing to allow us to go through all sorts of things, various trials, trials of various kinds. And it would happen often and sometimes sudden. For what purpose? For good. That we be conformed to the image of Christ. Why? Because that is actually the most healthy thing for us. You know, it's interesting when I think about this passage, what James is doing here is, is quite paradoxical. It's interesting here to me that uh, James contrasts uh, the contrast that he's giving to us here about trials. We typically equate trials with the loss of something. But what James is doing is he's saying that trials will position us to lack nothing. I want you to think about that for a moment. What we often think is that trials are taking something away. What James is doing is he's saying, no, no, that's not how it works. When you encounter trials of various kinds, what God is doing is he's wanting to give, you, give to you so that you lack nothing. We can consider trials joy because of what it produces, not because of the trial itself. You see, and I find this to be very wise according to God. You know what it means to have wisdom? What it means to have wisdom is that you, you can connect the dots between, between what's happening today and how that might flesh out tomorrow. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 
he tells us to take thoughts captive. Now, why is that wise? Well, because you know if you dwell on this particular thought today, if it's a, not a, a particularly uh, helpful or godly thought, if it's a sinful or lustful thought, it doesn't stay in lustful form. It doesn't stay in the thought world. It, it, as you dwell on it, it begins to produce fruit that comes out of you, a fruit of the flesh. And we know that whether it be two weeks, a month, or a year from now, if we dwell on that thought, that's what's coming out. That's, that's wisdom. That's applying the wisdom of the Lord. A lack of wisdom is to not be able to see what I do and think today affects tomorrow. I think about this most, really. Uh, kids are great illustrations, aren't they? Um, <clears throat> This was an example that we saw in my house. My kids were younger. We had just brought our twin girls home. And uh, it was, it's quite an exciting time in our house. <clears throat> and uh, grandmother was watching uh, three of the boys and then the oldest girl. And uh, for some reason, they thought it was a really good idea in the moment that uh, the boys would lay on their back and with their feet up in the air. And the, the girl, who was three at the time, would, uh, would sit on their feet and then launch like a rocket across the, uh, <laughs> across the room. And so, like, it was happy-go-lucky and joyous for about 10 minutes until that one time. And see, what's happening is a lack of wisdom. They're not thinking, like, this might be dangerous, somebody might get hurt. They're just thinking, like, this is fun now, and we love it. And so they keep going. And eventually she, <coughs> she falls awkwardly, breaks her arm, uh, and so we have this uh, very expensive ambulance ride and two surgeries later and about $12,000, and, uh, and she's repaired, right? Uh, it, was, uh, it was a trial, to say the least. My point is, is that this is how a lack of wisdom works. Is we choose what's imminent, not thinking about what's to come. You see, God warns us about the things that are to come. And where to rest in the here and now to know that what's coming, based on his word, uh, is satisfactory. This is exactly what James is trying to help us to understand. Now... As we think about trials, and that they're various in their kind, and that they happen, they're going to happen to all of us, and that they often come upon us suddenly, he tells us the way in which this produces something. Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Some versions say endurance, other versions say patience. Now, I want to just make one quick note that I think is important for us that we miss in the modern. Most of the techniques that we have from worldly systems is to do what we can to alleviate the pressure immediately. I think it's interesting that when God describes trials of various kinds and these types of trials that we walk through, what God is producing in us is very similar to the language of something like Romans 5. That these types of difficulties produce in us character, a type of character that produces hope, and that type of hope will not put us to shame. And all the while, what it's building is patience. It's building endurance. It's building steadfastness. Based on what? It's building a patient longing and a patient waiting for the day and time that has been promised to those who believe where all these things that we encounter because of trials... And sometimes the negative effects that we see consequentially, whether they be physiologically or emotionally, that there, come, there will come a day where it will be eradicated once and for all, forever. What should happen in our mind when we encounter trials is the beauty of heaven should flourish. When we think about what's to come and what God has promised, and this is what's building in us a steadfastness, a patience, 
And this is the type of character that builds hope and a type of hope that will not put us to shame. You see, the intention of trials is to crucify and mortify the flesh so that a hope, a hope that's enduring, a hope that's lasting, a hope that's patient, that we could say with John the Revelator, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And as a lady in waiting, we wait and long and look, just like Paul would talk about in Titus 2.13, that he longed for the glorious appearing of Christ. That's what's working in us. And he tells us the, the method by which this happens. The testing of our faith produces endurance. And here's the thing. This method that God employs as we encounter various trials, this method that he gives seems quite paradoxical to us. It's hard for our natural minds to be wrapped around this idea that, are you serious? Like trials going to produce something that's good? We want to do everything we can to avoid trials. I mean, if the AC's broken, we got to get it fixed today, right? Because it's uncomfortable. Any type of trial, God's wisdom says this. And this is the part that's non-negotiable that I think we often miss. This is the part where Jesus in his normalcy always submitted to the wisdom of God. You remember Jesus in the garden? Is there another way? Let this cup pass from me. Is there another way? And yet he resigns to say, not my will, but yours be done. You see, in that moment, what he's doing is, is what is intended for us as humanity, to resign to the wisdom of God. Even though to him, in the outward pressure, the stress that he was enduring in the Garden of Gethsemane, the crying out to the Lord, yet he resigns in his own will to say, not mine, but yours be done. This is really intended to uh, the, the intended effect for us when we endure trials. Is it's intended to strip all the hopes that we have that's killing us. All the hopes that we have in the temporal things of the world that, that we place affections upon. And God in his wisdom is saying, I want to demonstrate to you how much of a leaning post this is to you. Because when you lean upon this, this causes all kinds of turmoil. All kinds of struggle of various kinds, which we'll see unfolded later. But this is the method. This is the wisdom of God, which seems so counterproductive to us. But this is the way God unfolds his wisdom. We must trust this wisdom. We may never know why we are going through the trial. But I want you to notice that that's not a requirement for your joy. You may never know the why. But that's not the requirement for your joy in this passage. Our faith in God's wisdom is necessary for our joy through the trial. Through the trial as we walk through it. Listen to Spurgeon. Strong. Sound faith is not based on feelings, but on knowledge. An understanding of the promises of God's truth, which is spiritual wisdom. You see, in moments like that, we don't feel like doing anything. We don't feel like doing anything. We just want to resign ourselves. But we're called to trust in the wisdom of God at that moment. Now, he also tells us to do something. Look at the next verse, and this is quite curious to me. Now, I want you to wrestle with me in regard to this truth that he says. Because here, all of a sudden, we've been talking about counting it joy when we encounter various trials, and God's going to do something in that. He's going to build steadfastness, and, and the whole thing he's going to do is he's actually going to make us complete, lacking in nothing. And now James gives a contrast. James gives a contrast, and, and the question that he asks, I think, is significant. Because he, he doesn't ask questions related to our physical responses. He doesn't ask questions related to other things that we might want when we're needy and in trial. 
The thing that he associates with our difficulty in our struggle is a lack of wisdom. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, if any of you lacks wisdom, what kind of a question is that? You see, what James is trying to articulate is he's trying to say all of us lacks wisdom. So when we encounter trials of various kinds, what's it going to reveal in us? It's going to reveal in us the wisdom that we've been trusting in. It's going to demonstrate that it's not normal and natural for us, number one, to consider it joy. It's not normal and natural for us to resign ourselves to be strengthened in the inner man, to be steadfast, to put our hope in Christ, to feel like Christ is giving us uh, something to where we lack nothing. It's not normal. We would lack wisdom. Why? Because we expect that God should be doing something else in a different way. Listen to Spurgeon again. He says, you cannot work long for your heavenly Lord without perceiving that you need greater wisdom than your own. Can we all just admit up front in church that we lack wisdom? All of us lack wisdom. And if you live life for very long, especially with the intent of trying to pursue holy things, it becomes very apparent very quickly that we lack wisdom. Uh, most people think, well, you pursued a Ph.D., you must be pretty smart. Let me tell you what the Ph.D. demonstrated to me is how dumb I really am. <laughs> is all the horizons of knowledge that are out there that I know nothing about. I, I think that was a reminder to me of just how beautiful God is in that he's all-knowing and that he's all-wise. And, and trials have this type of effect. To where we, we lack wisdom. We say, how do I know if I lack wisdom? Look at the rest of the passage here. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Who gives to all generously and without reproach it will be given to him. We'll come back to that in a second. He says, but let him ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea. How do we know if we lack wisdom? It'll become very apparent. It's not some sort of cognitive thing that just appears to your mind in an aha moment. Right? This is something that experientially you begin to see I'm lacking wisdom. How? Because my life seems to be in turmoil and I'm tossed to and fro. It's arrogance to say in moments like that nothing's wrong. It's absolutely okay and fine to humble ourselves at that moment and know that we are needy people. We are desperate people. And how does he describe this? He gives three basic ways in which he describes uh, the demonstration that we lack wisdom when we're encountering trials. The first thing he says is we're driven and tossed by the wind. What he means is as life is happening, think of the language that's used in Matthew chapter 7 when Jesus is talking about uh, not just to be a hearer of the word, but to be a doer of the word. And then he gives this illustration where he talks about uh, two houses, and these men were building two houses, and one was building it on the rock, and when the winds came and the, and the storm blew, his house remained, but the, the other guy built his house on the sand. You see, he was a hearer. He knew intellectually what Jesus had just talked about, but he didn't, he didn't put it into practice. I want you to notice that when we don't put the word into practice, what does Jesus promise will happen to us? We'll be cast away. We will fall into trials of all sorts of kind, uh, all sorts and all kinds. Now we think about that and we think, well, that path doesn't sound very enticing. And rightfully so. Why? Because if we had our own way, in our own ignorance, we would continue to live life pursuing the things that we want and we desire. But in God's goodness and kindness, he's willing to snatch us from this being driven and tossed to and fro. This is our experience. This is what we're experiencing in that moment. He says it another way. Look at the way he says it 
For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Verse 7, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Verse 8, he is a double-minded man. He's a double-minded man. That word is actually daisuke, which is, uh, in the Greek, it just simply means a double-souled man. He's a man trying to pursue God and mammon, or God and earthly things. In that moment, his soul is in conflict. He's wrestling. I love the way John Bunyan describes this in his, uh, in his famous story, Pilgrim's Progress. He, he describes this man as Mr. Facing Both Ways. You know, that's interesting when, when that happens to us, when we find ourselves in trials, and we're wrestling with which way to go. And we feel the pressure of being tossed to and fro, and we feel ourselves even divided, emotionally uh, vexed and in turmoil in soulish amounts. It's not a, not a point of condemnation. It's a simple fact that in our humanity, we lack wisdom. And just as impossible it is, as it is for John Bunyan's Mr. Facing Both Ways to see both ways because eyes are only in one side of his head, it's impossible for us to truly serve two masters. And so in these instances, this is a cry for submission, a cry that we would resign to our own ways and to our own wisdom and to the wisdoms of the world and now resign to the wisdom of God, at which he would produce faith and steadfastness in us. You see, God wants to use these things to please himself so that we would no longer continue to seek to please our own self. He says a final way in verse 8, that this man is unstable, that this man is unstable in all of his ways. Now, this is an interesting word, and I think it's an appropriate word that we would talk about, the instability. I talked a, a little bit about um, one description of what it means to be unstable when I gave the illustration of the toddler earlier. Uh, but this word seems to have some sort of a different kind of expression. It's only used, to my knowledge, in two places in the New Testament here in James chapter 1, verse 8, and also in James 3, 16. And this is a word that actually translated best might say the word disordered. It's out of order in all of my ways. Have you ever experienced life like that? I think it's interesting that even the world tries to describe what's wrong with humanity, what's abnormal about humanity in terms of being diagnosed with a disorder. And yet we act as though the Bible doesn't speak to these types of human disorders. I would argue that here James is fully expressing some of those same ideas. That we are double-minded and we are disordered in all of our ways when we trust in our own wisdom. You see, the effects of our trial reveal the wisdom upon which we lean. Believer, what's, ex what's being exposed is what we already know. That we lack wisdom. Trials expose our dependence upon wisdom. What's in question at the moment is not that we are dependent upon wisdom, but which wisdom is our leaning post of hope in that particular moment. Trials give us a gaze into our inner man in a way that transcends our typical human reflections. The exposure of our inner man is both uncomfortable and welcomed. What do I mean when I say it's both uncomfortable and welcomed. First of all, I think it's uncomfortable because of how difficult it is for the flesh to be exposed. That's uncomfortable for everyone. That when trial happens and we don't know which way is up, right? We've never experienced this emotionally in our disposition before. I've always thought that depressed people were those people. I thought people who were bound by anxiety were those people. Like I felt worry, but that's not the same, right? 
It's uncomfortable. Why? Because it exposes us. It exposes us not just to ourselves and before God, but often it exposes us before others, and that's uncomfortable. Maybe we would even say that that's embarrassing when we're exposed to that degree. We retract from what we see, our frailties and weaknesses. We retract from that as natural men. Even worse, when others may have a window into our souls, when others see this occurring to us. And you have to notice the flesh doesn't die easy. In moments like this, when we see our flesh exposed and we see God unveil some of those uh, desires and difficulties in our own heart, uh, our wrestling with the flesh and loving the flesh, it doesn't die easy. Weakness is never easy to admit, but it's even more difficult for us to embrace. And for you, Christian, the paradox is that when God exposes these, this lack of wisdom, that you're trusting in your own wisdom or the wisdom of the world, is that we learn to embrace that weakness, not run from it. Not try to alleviate yourself from it because, listen, it's in your weakness that now Christ can be strong. When you try to alleviate the weakness in some other form, Christ is no longer necessary. You see, what trials do is they, they expose and make us very raw so that now what we see is we need the balm of Christ. We need the medicine of Christ. We need the hope of Christ. We need the wisdom of Christ. We need the restoration of Christ. But it's also welcomed. It's welcomed because we have hope in the source of all wisdom that promises work together for our good. When James comes around with a second command... In verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, thanks James, we weren't aware of that. We lack wisdom. And what does he tell us to do? You see, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, our tendency when we fall into our own wisdom is when God comes near, we run and we hide. Isn't that the same way that we think about the church? Is That's where holy people go, I can't go there. We, we don't desire to become near to the people of God and to the presence of God. We want to run away. But here what James is saying is, listen, when you're exposed, when you lack wisdom, when, when your soul is vexed and God exposes it, ask God. Ask in faith, he says. I would say not to ask is arrogance. It's arrogance. But even more, it's disobedience because this is a command. James does not give uh, good advice here, but a command that we ask of God. Can I plead with you that when moments like this happen, and they will, that your, this would be your first response is to ask God and not your last resort. I fear that what we've, what we've done is we've we found ourselves in a cycle and pattern of living life to such a degree that when moments like this happen, we run to cover ourselves with so many other things besides the covering that's Christ. And what we find is that those things, when the next trial comes, are just as inadequate as the wisdom that we leaned on before. And we find ourselves cyclically in more and more turmoil, complicating the matters more and more and more. Spurgeon, who is well aware of this, said, When believers face times of testing, whether physical, emotional, moral, or spiritual, they have special need of God's wisdom. It's okay to admit that. It's okay for us to be honest with how we lack wisdom, that we're not God. Can, can you understand that trials are just a demonstration and a proclamation to you that you're not God? None of us are. And we need wisdom that comes from the only source that is wisdom himself. You see, when we experience these types of moments, I mean, this is what it means in the New Testament to be thirsty. 
where we long for something that we don't have. We're thirsty, and what we often do is we, we run to superficial remedies. There's one way that I can remember. Uh, I've done a lot of mission work traveling overseas, and I spent a lot of time in Honduras. My, my sister and her husband uh, are missionaries there for over a decade, and uh, one of the times, I've, I don't know, been 30 or 40 times, and uh, going down there, it's interesting, they're out in very rural places, and I took a team one time, and this was a team of young people, and I warned them ahead of time, like, don't eat lettuce, don't drink the water, you know, don't brush your teeth, and don't do things like that. Well, we were going to this remote place um, that was about 6,500 foot elevation, and we start at the bottom at this river, and there's no way to cross the river, there's no bridge, so you can't drive up this uh, this place, and uh, the only gospel witness was a teacher who had moved in only about two years before. Uh, every, every, everywhere else was basically just kind of a very interesting type of religion, syncretistic, non-gospel oriented for sure. So I was going to take this group of young people, and I was, much, uh, I was in much better shape then. I don't think it would go very well today. But we were going to trek up this mountain. And to say the least, when we're going up this mountain... Uh, elevation becomes an issue and you get tired and hot and, and it's literally like at points on the mountain where uh, it, it, you have a switch back that goes back and forth and as you're walking you're literally touching the mountain which is right here as you go back and forth. So it's quite grueling. We get up to the top and <clears throat> there's a, a spring that, that leads to a stream and uh, I'm telling these young people, they, they obviously beat me up there. I'm like, guys, uh, you shouldn't drink the water. Well, but it looks clear and it's fine and we're at the top like it's going to be okay. And you see what happens is at that moment, like they were thirsty. They'd gone through trial. They'd gone through difficulty and they needed to be quenched. They didn't have what they needed within themselves and they needed something else. And to their natural eye, it looked quite clean and crystal clear. And so they drank and actually it quenched their thirst quite well. <laughs> the problem is you can just imagine what was happening the rest of the night. Right? <laughs> and so I resigned even in my thirst, because I knew there was probably something that was not healthy in the water. I had trusted the wisdom of so many who had gone before who said, don't drink the water. Even though you can't see with your natural eye, can I tell you that that's what we do often? What we do often in trial is we become thirsty. We become wanting. We become desirous because we know we need something that we don't have in our own strength. And God has given us remedy. He's given us a way that we should pursue that our thirst would be quenched. It's the Lord Jesus, the fountain of life, the fountain of water, living water. But yet we resign ourselves to choose things that look good to the natural eye but are quite contaminated. And often what we find is it's quenching for the moment, but it really complicates matters as life goes on. How do we ask in faith? I used to always ask this question. You guys probably did this. I had a very godly mom and dad. And my mom used to say to me all the time, Dale, just trust the Lord. What does that mean? Right? Dale, just trust the Lord. Okay, mom, what does that look like? Well, here, this is really something similar. Ask in faith. Well, what, what does that mean? Like name it, claim it style? Uh, I would argue no. He says to ask in faith. Well, what are we asking in faith about? We always ask in faith according to the wisdom of Scripture. And look back at verses 3 and 4. This is the wisdom of God. This is what's contrary to us in our natural understanding. And it takes faith to be able to ask according to this wisdom of God. How do we ask in faith? For you know that the testing of your faith produces something. And that God is going to bring it about to where we now lack nothing. And God, I don't see it. God, I can't see how in this moment you're going to bring that about. 
but I'm going to ask in faith that you do according to your wisdom and I'll resign myself to my desires and my own wisdom and the wisdom contributed from all human sources and I'm going to trust what you say in this moment. That's asking in faith. But he also tells us who to ask. And you couple this with 1 Corinthians, there's a warning not to ask of human wisdom, but to ask of God. And notice, this is a beautiful description. I'm a very conservative guy, but this is the beauty of the liberality of God. He says to ask of God. Ask in faith of God, he tells us the stores. And he says that he'll give to all men liberally. Now, we need to pause here. And with the very few minutes that we have left, we need to consider what he's saying. There's a reason that, that James tells us to ask of God and not some other source. Because in trial, you know the thing that's most questioned? Yes, we question our wisdom. We question the wisdom of others. But immediately what begins to happen is we naturally question the wisdom of God. We begin to question things like, God, are you merciful? You see, we begin to question whether God is truly merciful or not because, uh, God, I don't deserve this, is what we would say. What did I do to deserve this, is a question we might ask. And what we don't realize is in those moments, God is actually operating quite mercifully. Because if he were to give us what we, what we deserved, he would just leave us to ourselves. The beauty of God engaging with us, even through difficulty and trial, is he's using that now to refine us. That is merciful, because you're not getting what you deserve. A.W. Tozer says it like this, If we could remember that the divine mercy is not a temporary mood, but an attribute of God's eternal being, we would no longer fear that someday it will cease to be. And sometimes trials make us question, is God merciful? You have to remember what God is doing in the trial. And you'll see that he's stripping you of all those things that are killing you. James later would tell us that when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. And in context, this is what God is saying he's stripping you of, even through trial. You know, one of the things that we question as well about the character and the nature of God that often keeps us from running to him in difficulty is we forget that God is good. We forget that God is good. God's goodness in our trial is seen in his willingness to go to battle against those pesky desires that pollute and ruin your heart and my heart. C.H. Spurgeon says it like this, those cuts of the lancet are sharp and you think the surgeon means to kill but he intends to cure. You see, isn't that a beautiful thing that what God knows that you need, he's willing to do and he's willing to wield the scalpel of the word of God to accomplish it? That that is God being good. For God to allow our own selfish desires and our own wisdom to fester in our heart and mind would make him not good. But the beauty of God willing to do the things that are necessary as a surgeon with skill and precision to cut the festering uh, uh, wounds in our heart and in our mind, that's the beauty and the goodness of our God. One of the things that we question as well is God's providence. God, are you really, are you really sovereign? Are you really engaged in this moment? Are you taking a nap somewhere? What's happening? Did you forget me? This is the question of the psalmist consistently. God, where are you? Are you near? Did you forget me? You, are you listening to me? Are you hearing what I'm saying? Are you, are you watching what's unfolding to me? 
George Swinnick has comforted my soul with his words describing the providence of God. He says, the hand that made everything maintains everything. You see, when, when we endure trial of various kinds, God's not asleep at the wheel. Paul would teach us that Jesus, this one who spoke and things came into existence, the Bible says he holds all things together in his hand. We can trust the providence of a good God. The final thing I think that we struggle with is questioning whether or not God is, is faithful. Is God faithful? Just be comforted by the word here. We question, God, are you faithful in working in us and with us? Listen to the word of God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope will not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more shall we be saved by his life. God has not forgotten you. His promises are still true. What you're seeing unfold in the natural realm has no power to diminish nor destroy what God has promised to be true. Stop believing what's happening in the natural realm unfolding that you can feel and sense with your five senses. He says, ask in faith of this God whose character remains true and pure. See, the whole point of us walking through trial is we often question the character of God. God is using that to comfort us with it. I think it's interesting the way that God reveals himself in the word as a shelter, as a strong tower, as a rock, as a shield, as a fortress, as a buttress. He gives these pictures because in difficult times, that's the place we run to hide. This is seen as normal, and they're demonstrated in our human experience so that we can experience God for who he is. Listen, friend, there are a thousand more mercies in God than there are mercies to be found in your trial. Run to him. Ask of him. Leave behind the broken cisterns of the world and the world's wisdom as we walk through trial. Can I just tell you as we bring this to a close that I think this is a demonstration of how God in his wisdom, one way, that God in his wisdom tries to allow us to be conformed through the refining fires of trial and difficulty. To be conformed for what purpose? So that you can be healthy. So that you can be like Christ in reflecting the character and the beauty and the nature of God in a broken and desperate world. If you remember a verse that we started with yesterday, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. You see, here's the point. The point is that we lack what's necessary to live life appropriately. And what God is doing in his beauty and his kindness toward us is he's, he allows us to demonstrate that he's strong enough to walk us through the difficulty of life. For what purpose? 
so that you could live for the reason that you were designed to live. To be at rest in peace as you walk with God. Demonstrating to a watching world the character and the kindness and the compassion and the care and the love and the faithfulness and the goodness and the mercy of this kind God as you live life expressing his glory to others. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your love and mercy and grace toward us. I pray, Father, that we would see what's normal and natural and that by your wisdom and by your power that we would trust in faith that you're doing something in us by the Spirit, helping us crucify the flesh so that, God, we can live normal. We can live in a way that reflects your glory, which is what we intended to, to be and to do. And that, God, we would find ultimate satisfaction, ultimate rest, and ultimate peace in your goodness and what you do for us. In Christ's name, amen.